Hello and welcome to a new year and a new season, if you will, of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. After some time off for the holidays and our busy season between Thanksgiving and baseball winter meetings, we're back for the football playoffs, both college and pro. That's what we'll talk about for most of the next month. And our first guest in 2020 is Paul Sabin, Senior Sports Analytics Specialist at ESPN. With the college football championship game on Monday, I wanted to use that matchup as a lens to look at ESPN's various college football metrics, including their football power index, the player impact rating, and the college playoff predictor. Paul has been involved in developing those metrics. He'll talk about that process, about the results the metrics have spit out, challenges in quantifying the human element, and communicating uncertainty along the way. We'll touch on college basketball as the season hits the business end with conference play underway. And Paul will also talk about his career path to ESPN, advice for those entering the field, and being a Nationals fan during their World Series run last year. Then Albert Larcata will join me with his thoughts and to wrap things up. Now, without further ado, here's the Expected Value Conversation with ESPN's Paul Sabin. We're joined now on Expected Value by Paul Sabin, Senior Sports Analytics Specialist at ESPN. Paul, welcome to the show. Let's dive right in just by asking, what's the high-level overview of what you do at ESPN? Yeah, so I'm part of the sports analytics team. And I mean, my job is to create models, essentially model predict future performance by teams and players and also describe some of the past stuff. So we, you know, cover just about all the sports, but we heavily focus on, on football and basketball. So you know, BPI, FPI are some of our staples, QBR, playoff predictor, things like that. How much of these models that you're building, how much that's based on, we'll just say, publicly available data versus things that ESPN is tracking and bringing in in-house? I guess it depends on your publicly available data because a lot of (laughs) what we do, we put on ESPN.com and then it is publicly available. But Uh a large part of it, I'd say well over 50% is data that is provided. Uh, We have rights deals with certain data providers and and we have that in-house. I mean... I'm a huge fan of publicly available data, but in the same sense, you know, it makes sense for big companies like ESPN to have their own rights deals and and we try mm-hmm. to make the best of the plethora of data we have. Yeah, so let's dive into some of these metrics that ESPN and you have developed. Let's start with the FPI, the Football Power Index, and we'll use this national title game coming up as kind of a lens to look at that. So FPI has Clemson as a slight favorite, 56% over LSU. Uh, why is that from what you can pull out of those numbers? Yeah, I mean, really, it comes down to Clemson having the best defense in FPI's eyes and LSU having the best offense. But the difference really is that LSU's defense is 13th overall, and we think Clemson's offense, the weaker side of the ball for them, is fifth overall. So that gives them sort of the edge uh, there. On on a neutral field, which this game is, we would give them uh, about a three-point advantage. But because this game is really close to, to Baton Rouge, it's about a two-point mm-hmm. advantage, right? Which we get that number. All right, let's look at the total QBR. It's, you have an NFL product, you have a college football product. Uh, so looking at the leaderboards on .com, Joe Burrow, 94.4 QBR, Trevor Lawrence, 89.0 QBR. Uh, what are some of the things that go into that and making that a little bit of a difference between the two quarterbacks? Yeah, I mean, so QBR at its base is EPA per play, right? And then we do some mm-hmm. adjustments for EPA per play. So 
we downweight plays that are happen in garbage time, you know, when the game's pretty much out of hand as defined by our win probability models. Um, and then other things that we track. So um, we have a group at ESPN that tr manually tracks a lot of this information, such as drops um, and things like that. So interceptions, you know, aren't all created equal. You know, if it goes through the receiver's hands versus if it's just a terrible throw, right, those are treated differently. Mm -hmm. The quarterback will get more blame if he throws it right to the defender versus if he throws it an on-target pass and the receiver, you know, doesn't catch it and then it gets tipped and intercepted. Got it. Looking at the other sortables on that QBR page, I see that Burrow's way ahead of everyone in points above average and EPA. Uh, so how are those things pulled into QBR because he's way ahead in those, but then it's, you know, it's a, it's a much smaller margin uh, when you look at the final QBR numbers compared to other guys. Yeah. So QBR really is a per play number converted zero to 100. Uh, when you look at points above average and things like that, that's like total points created. So mm -hmm. you'll see that uh, the borough has actually 113 more action plays on that plays column. And so a lot of that, although they're closing QBR borough has just thrown the ball or run the ball a lot more. Uh, this season than Lawrence. And so he has, in effect, created uh, more points. So another player rating tool that you guys have developed, and I think you're heavily involved in this uh, this year, is the player impact rating, which was developed for college football. And this covers all positions, not just quarterbacks. So tell me about what was the process? How did this come about? How do you go about developing an all-encompassing player rating for college football? Yeah, so this started because we wanted to come up with some number, right? I mean, football is such a hard sport to really quantify the non-skilled positions. Mm -hmm. um, and really outside of the quarterback and other skilled positions are kind of tricky too. Um, and so we kind of took our inspiration from the uh, real plus minus type models uh, we see in basketball. Um, but instead of having points, right, we have to come up with some other measure because in football, you know, points only happen every so often. So we use EPA, so on every play, uh, as a judge of how successful the play was, uh, who's on the field, on offense and defense. And then we also account for things like position. And one of the nice things that the, this model does is it doesn't just treat all positions equally. I remember when I was like kind of running through this iteration a little over a year ago, mm -hmm. uh, it was mostly the way through the 2018 season. And I got like my first results back and it, the model spit out. Kyler Murray and three of his offensive linemen as the most impactful players in college football. And I thought to myself, ah, he's probably more impactful than his offensive linemen, right? Because we know right, right. quarterbacks have that influence. So I thought to myself, mm -hmm. well, how could I incorporate that aspect? So essentially what it does is it penalizes or shrinks uh, different positions based on what the model finds the positional value to be. So obviously, as we would expect, it thinks quarterbacks have a higher positional value or variance, right? So if you're good at a, as a quarterback, uh, your replacement value over a replacement quarterback is much higher than if you're a good uh, running back, per se. Uh, mm -hmm. per se. So um, that's kind of how the model is created. It just looks at the EPA per play for every player on the field and it adjusts um, just like a plus minus model would, but then it accounts for your position and then whether or not it was a run or pass because we know pass plays on average uh, have a higher EPA value. So for example, like the army quarterback, he can still be viewed as good if his contributions to the run game are positive, even though he's not a good thrower. All right. So this positional thing, is it fair to say it's kind of like, I think war defensive war in baseball, where if you're like a good defensive shortstop, that's going to help you more than if you're a good defensive first baseman. So it's a similar sort of thing like that. 
Yeah, it is similar. I mean, you can only add so much, right? At right, certain right. positions. But okay. when we put the leaderboard up on ESPN.com, right, I convert because I don't want to judge everyone to a quarterback, right? I mean, you only are judged against people who play the same position as you. So we convert that to a zero to 100 number within each position. And that's what you see on ESPN.com as in then re um, ranked based on, you know, everyone zero to 100. Number. Right. But okay, so the, a 95 okay, so as a quarterback is like contributes way more to the game than a 99 at any other position. Yeah. Looking at the, the leaderboard that I think this was updated before the bowl season. So linebacker Dylan Harris from UConn is number one with a 99 rating. Uh, so it's not necessarily saying that he is as valuable as anyone else, the 99 rating, but it's that 99 relative to other linebackers, right? Yeah, really. Yeah. It looks at the impact of when he's on the field to his team, uh, accounting for the other players uh, compared to other people. So amongst linebackers, I mean, he, you look at the splits. I mean, I think it's something like UConn is atrocious on defense, right? Which is kind of, right. kind of he's an interesting example. Cause I really, when I saw that, I was just like, uh, I don't know about that. Right. right. When <laughs> anytime you create a model, you don't just want to blindly trust it. You really want to poke holes at it. Uh, and so I, I try to poke holes at why he was there. And I mean, UConn, I think I can't top of my head, but there's something like minus almost half a point allowed per play when you look at EPA on defense. Mm-hmm. But when he's on the field, it's closer to like minus 0.1. Right. Mm-hmm. So he, over the course of 70 plays, if he's in the game the whole time, uh, predictively, I don't know if this is true, but descriptively going back, I mean, they are much better defense when he's on the field and he impacts their defense more than any other linebacker does. And that's why he's a 99. So I was looking through the leaderboard and Joe Burrow has been trophy winner, not listed on the top 50, which goes down to a rating of about 93. So I just raised the natural question. It's not to say it's a bad rating, but what goes into where Burrow comes out in this player impact rating? Yeah. So he actually just barely missed that. He's a 91, but um, really one of the things that, can hurt a guy's um this is teammates oddly enough right so we actually view joe burrow's offensive teammates as superior in the large part mm-hmm. than to trevor lawrence's so um we look at his wide receivers uh that we have three or four of them that are at least 87 or above whereas uh clemson's top receiver justin ross we have in the 87 so essentially the rating and part of the reason it thinks that is it saw saw how joe burrow was a year ago and it kind of starts him at that value so he's a bigger mm-hmm. hill to climb he, he was good last right. year but he wasn't this good right and so it says well hey we have a couple new wide receivers that have come into the play for this team and now all of a sudden he's way better he's going to get some of that credit for improving but they're also going to get some of that credit and that's kind of why he's not as high as trevor lawrence who has been maybe a down year this year he's still 97 right so he's right. still one of the top players in the game okay i want to ask about the college playoff predictor that you and the analytics team have developed this is an interesting thing to me just because uh, it's not like it was back in the you know bcs days where it was pure computer rankings and you could you know maybe figure out you know what different systems weighed and what they didn't and it was it was a little more of a mathematical game than it is now because you're obviously trying to project what a committee is going to do so what goes into the college playoff predictor that's trying to capture a human element in all this. Yeah. I mean, so the, the player predictor, essentially it only looks at what the committee has done in the past based on various metrics we have and how correlated those metrics are with their decisions. So, but as you'll assume, right. The 
committee based on these metrics is not very consistent. Um, right. So, so I think when you build a model like this, the number one thing is to make sure you capture the correct amount of uncertainty associated with where a team will be. Um, mm. Anytime you model human behavior, right? Humans don't always act rationally um, or consistently. So we have the rankings week by week since the first week we had the college football rankings, we compare them to a various number of metrics. And what we found that the two things that correlate most heavily with it are strength of record, right? Is how much you've, as a metric we have, how much you have accomplished uh, and the number of losses you have, which are strength of record accounts for, but the committee actually penalizes you even more than they should um, based on a strength of record metric. And then FPI or other power indexes, you know, have some impact that correlate without even when you count for those other things. But you'll see like this year, I mean, once, once Utah lost and Oklahoma won, everyone just in everyone's head, based on the way the rankings were, they said Oklahoma is a lock, right? Like hundred percent, right. Yeah. right? The model's never going to say that. Um, we still gave Georgia, I, I, not 50%, but you know, a sizable percentage to make it favoring Oklahoma. But because it's human behavior, you have to make sure that you're, uh, uncertainty is properly captured. I, I, I would much rather go out on a, and, and be a little underconfident in a situation right. in a model like this than overconfident and, yeah. and people being like, you said 99. Right? So. <laughs> You're right, which is what we've seen in elections and U.S. not qualifying for World Cups. And yeah, anyway, you're talking about communicating uncertainty. That's that's a tricky thing. And what have you found are effective ways to to make that uncertainty clear, like whether it's that 80% isn't 100% or, or whatever it might be as you're trying to communicate the data? Yeah, I mean, I think from my perspective, I just don't like saying like the model picks this team, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I would always say favors or more likely, it's just the verbiage, right? We always like right. to speak in absolutes um, yeah. in sports, but also just in life, right? Like how you always do this or you never do uh-huh. that, right? But uh-huh. no one's ever that cut and dry and, and in sports, the same thing, right? Also, I think relative, right? So when you have a percentage, um, if someone's 53%, maybe you could capture, well, what is the difference between being 53% and 80% and give an example of, you know, another team that's favored or maybe a better team that has is more of a favorite and kind of say, hey, look, this team is favored, but not by as much as, hmm. you know, this other situation. And I, I agree on the verbiage and I found, you know, just saying, yeah, the model suggests this or these stats suggest this instead of prove or show or just that one verb change, it just helps a lot and it softens everything. And it goes to that whole, you know, us against them. If we're like analytics against, you know, scouting or whatever, just softening up the language helps a ton. Right. Oh yeah. And it, I, I totally agree. And people are much more willing to, you know, accept what you have to say if you don't speak in absolutes. And really any good model should not be an absolute because mm. there is uncertainty all around. And that's one thing I love about like analytics, right? It's like, there's so many unknowns in the universe, right? But we're just, we just know what we know. And then we try to quantify how much we don't yeah. know, right? It's as much yep. of the job as quantifying what we do know is how much do we not yeah. know. Yeah, we're under that a lot just dealing with teams and stuff. You know, they don't know who's going to throw a fastball or whatever. They're just trying to get those tendencies, you know, in order as much as you can and so you have some sense of what might happen. So you have a college playoff predictor and I know you've said that there's a college basketball one in the works. What can you tell us about uh, putting all that together? Yeah. So we call it the playoff predictor for college and the bracket predictor for, uh, or for football and the bracket predictor for basketball. For basketball, for example, like we have a lot more data, more mm-hmm. teams, but also it's hard, right? Because 
in basketball, it's like there's, I think, 36 at-large teams uh, right now every year. And the model will be really confident on 30 of them. And then really you have to focus on those last six to 10 teams. Right. And, and same thing with football, you only have the four and typically, right. The two or three of them are pretty sure things. And it's really those last two or three teams. And that those margins, right. Are where people are going to judge or evaluate how your model did. And so I have to remember, like, I want those margins to be right. And if that means I'm not as confident in the one or two teams, that's fine because they're still going to be high up there. Um, but I found that like committees change, right? And one thing I'm struggling with is like in football, we only have what, six years or so, I think, mm-hmm. of of college football playoff committees. The committee is completely different now than it was when it started. That committee that left TCU out and put Ohio State in, right, right. which was pretty controversial at the time. Uh, this committee might not have done the same thing. And so we have such limited data. How do I properly adjust for this committee versus the last committee. I mean, right now we don't make a, a change, right? But maybe that's something going forward that you'll look more at is recent tendencies and things like that for committees. So stuff like this, you're always going to be just keeping an eye on what is happening, what has happened, and trying to figure out if you need to tweak something or make adjustments moving forward, right? Yeah. I mean, for example, this year for the football version, uh, a year ago, we favored Ohio State to make the playoff over slightly over Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, and when both teams won, Oklahoma was ranked ahead of Ohio State going into the conference championship games. They both won, and our model didn't change because it still thought Ohio State was more likely. So we said, eh, maybe there was some information in that last second to last week. So we made some mm-hmm. tweaks this year, and we incorporate like that last week of rankings. So but we don't have a lot of data there, right? So it's a slight yeah. modification. We don't want to overreact to limited data. And I think that's something that's easy to do is to, you know, causally say, oh, this happened because of this when we only have one data point. But we do it all the time in sports. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. They played once and this happened. So it's going to happen again or yes. not. One more college basketball thing since conference plays. Uh, getting going, we're getting into the business end of the schedule. Uh, BPI, you had an article out this week about uh, Big Ten is looking good, ACC struggling. What did you learn from your kind of first big deep dive into the BPI numbers this season? Yeah, I mean, I was shocked. UN, like North Carolina has had, uh, you know, Cole Anthony's been hurt. But I thought to myself, well, maybe that's, you know, the reason why they're not that good there. I think it's 65th or 6th in BPI right now. But BPI has been like dead on on their last three to four games on the predicted point margin. So I thought to myself, North Carolina is just not a good team. And I don't know Mm -hmm. where this came out of. I mean, it's traditionally one of the best basketball programs, one of the best basketball coaches. You know, Roy Williams is going to pass Dean Smith here on on wins. Um, Duke is still number one, but it's like a weaker number one than it was last year. Right. So the ACC is a little bit down. Virginia is down. Like they're still in the AP poll, but we don't even think they're a top 30 team anymore. Mm And whereas in Big Ten, I mean, we have Ohio State and Michigan State are both in the top four of BPI. Uh, the six teams, I think, the AP top 25. All of them are also top 25 BPI teams. But then we also have a couple more uh, that aren't really getting any attention, Wisconsin and Purdue. You look at some of their numbers, I mean, they're blowing out bad teams. They have some close losses. Uh, so their records may not reflect how good they are. Uh, and, you know, in our in our model, we think, you know, uh, on average, about nine teams are going to get in from from the big 10, whereas wow. okay. only like five and a half to six uh, for the ACC and the ACC hasn't had fewer than six teams make the NCAA tournament since it expanded from 
12, 13 teams in 2013 to 15 now. And so it's an odd year. UNC Greensboro is better, according to BPI, than UNC. Hmm. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's quite an interesting uh, college basketball season so far. And I mean, they're really like last year we had Duke and Virginia. Like we don't have a dominant team, right? And that's been kind of one of the stories so far. Yeah, the number one slot has changed, you know, however many times it is already this season. And yes, yeah, that'll be a, a fun thing to watch as we uh, head toward the NCAA tournament. And I saw I saw KU play UNC Greensboro earlier this year, and I wouldn't say that they were a, you know, they were a good team. They hung with K for a while, but ranking ahead of UNC is certainly an eye opener. Yeah, I mean they're right like neck and neck, but you know, I, yeah. right? I think yeah. <laughs> that's when, enough when right you're there. A, when you're a state school that has the name of the town attached to the end, right? Typically, <laughs> you're not above the team that is just right. UNC. Right? Yeah, for sure. Okay, to wrap things up, kind of on the what you're doing with ESPN's analytics group. What's next? Like, what what do you guys have kind of on the horizon that you're working on? Obviously, updating and changing and tweaking. But what's kind of a, a next big thing or two that you might have in the on the horizon for you? Yeah. So, I mean, on the basketball front, we just released, uh, we took over Real Plus Minus for ESPN. That used to be done by Jerry Unkelman, Jerry who now works uh, for the Dallas Mavericks. So we took that over, we revamped it, and we're going to use that to create a new uh, BPI for, for pro basketball NBA. So that'll account for injuries and, and player trades and right. all the sorts, um, even, you know, playoffs different minute distributions for players, things like that. I know other people have done that. So we're trying to catch up there. Uh, in football, I mean, we have all this player tracking data and we're going to continue to expand on the club coverage classification, route classification, pass block, you know, metrics that we have and do other player tracking stuff there. I mean, there's so much to be done in the NFL on player tracking that we'll also be spending a lot of time in that, in that space. I want to talk about how you got to basically where you are. So your academic background is in stats. You have a master's and a PhD. Uh, what pushed you towards sports in general in the statistical world? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm a, like a lot of people that I've met um, who want to do sports analytics or are in sports analytics where I was a kid and I watched, you know, 90s ESPN. And, you know, I laugh now because I would argue about touchdowns and you know, things, passing yards with people, oh, so-and-so is better because he's thrown 400 passing, you know, yards this uh -huh. game or whatever. Right? Stuff that I think is silly now, but those numbers are, that's how I always like to sort of view sports is through the numbers, through the box. Yep. So when I was trying to decide on a major uh, in college, I, I had taken AP stats in high school. I thought it was a breeze and always kind of done well at math. My family was pushing me to be an engineer. And I remember walking into my first day of, of classes and signed up for this intro to engineering class and I sat down I looked around people at the professor and I just thought to myself like this is boring this is not me <laughs> I got up in the middle of the class walked over to the library so I could pull out my hunky laptop and you know unregister from the class <laughs> and, and then I right. enrolled in stats and took 10 credits the next semester and I, I never never really looked back um, hey, when you know you know right <laughs> so yeah I mean and when I was in school like undergrad master's I would, whenever I had the chance to do a project, I could pick the topic, pick the data set that I wanted. You know, I would pick a sports topic and I look at the analyses I did back then. I mean, they were pretty basic, nothing really crazy, nothing really that smart, but it allowed me to learn the topic in a way that was much more enjoyable for myself. Cause sometimes, I mean, I read textbooks, I read other things, there'd be subjects, but I could not get my head around. And then once mm -hmm. I could apply it to a sports data set, I learned the topic. Like I learned the theory behind it way better. 
And so I would, you know, not just in sports, like if, if you're into data or anything like that, like if you can find a topic or a data set that really interests you, I mean, it just makes the learning process so much easy. So yes, your academics background, it's not, it wasn't sports analytics specific. It was, we'll just say general analytics. And then you found ways to apply that to things you're interested in, right? Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, like I, ne- I was not one of those people who was in college saying to myself, I'm going to work in sports analytics. Um, you know, I knew that data science or statistics, you know, was a good field. It was in demand. I'd have job opportunities. And so when I had the job opportunity, I connected with Ben Alomar, who who used to work at ESPN through a mutual yep. friend who had worked with him for, in the Cavaliers front office. And that's how I got introduced to like the sports analytics world. Uh, kind of, I applied and I was lucky enough to get the job. Um, and I, it's a, you know, it is a dream come true. I, Mm-hmm. I told myself, you know, if I don't get this job, I'll be happy because I, I've learned a lot. I have a good skill set and I'll be able to provide for, you know, my family. But now that I get to work in sports, I mean, I'm just find myself really you know, fortunate. I'm sure you, like me, you get people asking questions all the time. Like, how do I get into the field or things along those lines? What What's kind of your general boilerplate advice that you give to a student or someone looking to break into the sports analytics industry? Yeah, I mean, I think you got a network, you know, like I said, uh, the connection I had made a big difference. It wasn't the reason I got the job, but it was, it opened right. doors, introduced mm-hmm. me to people. I didn't actually know the job was out there until someone said, hey, you might be interested in this. So networking, I think is really important. Um, but I also just think doing your own work and and being okay, like if the opportunity doesn't come right now, right? Like just keep plugging along, advance your career and other things. I think uh, from someone who's been on the other side of like hiring that sometimes people focus more so much on sports. They don't actually have the statistics or computer science or, you know, technical expertise that they should. And there's enough people that have a really strong technical background that also like sports that I would always prefer to hire the technical background of someone who also likes sports than someone who loves sports analytics, but is a little weaker on the technical side. All right, let's finish things up by running through some of your favorites. Quick hitters, let's start with what is your favorite number and why? Number eight, I grew up in Maryland. Cal Ripken is my idol. Also went to BYU, Steve Young. Oh, wow, yeah, double whammy. It's nice. So favorite player, one of those two guys? Yeah, uh, I would probably say Cal Ripken. Growing up, uh, my family moved to Florida also when I was eight. Okay. And we went to uh, a spring training game, didn't get his autograph. We went three times, I think, before I finally got Cal Ripken's autograph, and it still hangs up in my office. Nice. What's the what's your favorite game that you have attended in person? Uh, ooh, I'll probably go with, uh, I went to BYU at the tail end of, of Jimmer Mania, and so okay. uh, hosted Kawhi Leonard, San Diego State. I think both teams were in the top 10 at the time. Uh, BYU knocked off San Diego State, I think. Jim for had like 43 points. Their careers took a different turn, uh, you know, a couple months after the game. <laughs> a little bit, but, a little bit. But uh, it was very exciting. And for a school that you're not used to, like, being in national spotlight, it was yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, that was those late-night BYU games. I think it was at ESPN the last year or two of his career. And those are always a little bit fun. If you had to work the late nights, they spiced them up a little bit. Uh, you're a Nationals fan now, you say, having moved mm-hmm. on. I guess maybe we ask this question. Moved on from the Orioles just because of... Or I guess maybe the question is why? Um, yeah, so I uh, I grew up in the Maryland D.C. suburbs, uh, mm-hmm. you know, but Baltimore's so close, right? We didn't have a baseball right. team for a lot of years. Yep, I was an Orioles fan growing up, and I still root for the Orioles. Orioles, but I also consider myself like I'm a D.C. fan, 
DC sports fan first. So when the Nationals came to town, I think I was in 10th grade. Uh, My wife actually went to the very first Nationals game at RFK Stadium. And uh, I still cheer for the Orioles, but honestly, I haven't been very good for the last 13 years. But yeah, yeah, the Nationals are a Washington team. And so I always cheer for them first. But you have a favorite favorite moment favorite moment moment from the World Series run last year? uh, I'll go with with two um, against the Dodgers when we were down and we had the back-to-back home runs on mm-hmm. consecutive pitches from Rendon and yeah. Soto off Clayton Kershaw. Cause I mean, I thought the game was over. I thought we were going right. to lose. I mean, I, I was so used to losing in game <laughs> yeah. five and we never had won one. Uh, and we had all these great teams and a high payroll, never won uh, division series. Um, and then also we had like a very similar thing, right. In game seven of the world series where we had the home runs by, Rendon mm-hmm. and Howie Kendrick, just a few, uh, yep. I think a couple of batters later that went from us trailing to taking the lead. So it was definitely up there. That's great. Uh, and finally, do you have a kind of a, how did I get here moment since you've gotten ESPN, you know, one of those like, wow, this is a uh, pretty cool where I'm at and where I've gotten to be. Do you have any of those moments or what's your favorite one of those from ESPN? Yeah, I think when I first got hired, I, was tasked with redoing our college basketball power index BPI. And it was around this time of year. Uh, so they're like, Hey, we're going to actually, you're going to focus on March madness, like better predictions. And I just remember the first time I got, you know, the model going, tested it and all that stuff. People had, you know, checked it out, validated it. I remember the first time seeing it on like the bottom line, mm-hmm. like, you know, so-and-so team, 37% chance, or whatever to win. And, uh, I just like, oh my gosh, like that was my work and now it's on TV (laughs) and you know, it, it wears off over time, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm used to it now, but it still is kind of cool. I mean, sometimes I'll be when I'm visiting my folks like over the holidays or something and I turn on ESPN, it'll be like, according to playoff predictor. And I'm like, my mom's always trying to figure out what I do. And so I'm like, (laughs) oh, here's a great opportunity. Like, that's what I do. For sure. I went through the same thing, ESPN. Those first few notes you see are the first graphics I built still. Uh, it's a pretty cool experience. All right. Paul Sabin, Senior Sports Analytics Specialist at ESPN. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks. Thanks to ESPN's Paul Sabin for joining us here on Expected Value. You can follow him on Twitter at Sabin Analytics, S-A-B-I-N Analytics. And I also recommend going back and listening to the conversation I had with Jeff Bennett, who's the vice president of ESPN Stats and Information. He both started and currently oversees Paul's analytics group. That was episode seven of Expected Value back in October. I'm joined now by Albert Lakata, who joined True Media in 2014 after basically having the same role that Paul does now at ESPN. So, Albert, I followed up with Paul a little bit on this. And I want to talk to you about it, too, since you've gone through the same thing. Just the process of creating a model, uh, the iteration. How do you know when it's ready? Just what is that process like when you're kind of starting from scratch and building a you know, football power index, soccer power index, whatever it is? What's that process like? Yeah, so it depends, I guess. We've at ESPN and even now us at True Media, we're, we're quite lucky in that we have a lot of data already stored, um, and we have software engineers, DBAs who do a lot with the data to organize it and uh, get it in a pretty good spot. Usually, when you're building a model outside those walls, the data wrangling side of things, getting the data set you want, having it structured in the way you want it structured, and whatever software you're using. Honestly, that can take more time than the actual modeling process itself. 
we, you know, we still have to deal with that a little bit, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a little bit better. But yeah, so once you have it, when is the model ready? The model's never ready, Paul. <laughs> it, still not ready. Yeah, it, I have models for 10 years ago that still aren't ready yet. You know, there's a time frame and usually it's business dependent. So like Paul mentioned in his interview, the he was his first task was college BPI and then he had March Madness as kind of a hard deadline. So my guess is he was working hard at it until <laughs> March Madness happened and then the model was done. It was ready. <laughs> so that ends up happening a lot. You know, you have arbitrary deadlines or very business dependent deadlines that you kind right. of need to hit and the model is as good as it's going to get. It can always be better. I think every data scientist, every analyst would tell you that, you know, if they had an extra day, they could do this or that. Or if they had an extra week, they could do that or this. And you you have a good sense. I think it's hard to explain exactly what it is until you do it a lot. But uh, you have a good sense when you're starting to reach pretty mm-hmm. low diminishing returns and you realize like every extra minute I spend on this, I'm like getting less and less predictive power, less and less whatever it is you're trying right. to solve. Yeah, I remember I dealt with a lot of the soccer power index, especially. And, you know, it was basically goals-based uh, when it started, which is better than results-based and not as good as expected goals-based, which we knew when we were creating it. It was just something that we couldn't – you couldn't do that for because the numbers didn't exist for so many leagues and stuff. You couldn't do it for – at the time for everybody. You didn't even have, you know, expected goals for all your, you know, qualifiers from the World Cup or something like that. It's a real challenge, especially, I think, for someone like ESPN or any kind of publicly-facing – company where you're making these analytics that people want to see and you'd like to have as a finished product, but you have to release it at some point. Like you said, you know it has some sort of issue one way or the other, and you just kind of have to roll with it and say, all right, this is what we have. Let's go. And then we'll keep iterating to make it better even after the fact. Right. Yeah. And and that's true. Once you productize a model, whatever that means in the context you build, you're going to get more eyes on it than ever before. And there's things right. that are going to come up that you just overlooked or thought you solved but you didn't solve um so that's always going to happen too there's there's no way around it the other thing i'd say is oftentimes when you're setting these deadlines like you know at our company now my boss will ask me oh so that we want to model you know x y or z how long is that going to take okay well i can get you a (laughs) version of a model in two days and it's probably not going to be great but it'll be directionally accurate (laughs) if that's what we want i can do that or you know we go up from there so that's the other problem with modeling is and i've learned too at true media it's true of software development as well it's you know software development same thing like yeah i could get a piece of code out there that's okay it'll work okay and i'll do it in two days but you know depending on how you know how many features we want to have functionality it's you know goes up and up and up from there it's very true of modeling as well the other thing that's kind of interesting to me is he talked about the player impact rating for college and how uh, one iteration, I think he said Kyler Murray and three of his offensive linemen were the top four players. And like, you know, something's not quite right there. It's interesting to me to, because you want the, you don't want the output to be boring in the sense that it's the same as something that exists or whatever it might be. And you also don't want it to uh, produce things that raise eyebrows too much. So I'm always interested by, you know, we dealt with this, I think, developing QBR. You got to find that balance between raising eyebrows, basically, but also making sense. Yeah, no, totally. That's, yeah, QBR is one of the first things we built. I think it was the first thing we built when when we started the ESPN Sports Analytics Group. And totally, we, we thought about that a lot. Like, what's the reaction going to be when we show this player is better than this player when wisdom of the of the, you know, experts at that point didn't say that. 
so you know you have to look for reasons like be very confident yeah. in your model and have reasons yeah. why this or this or that happens that's a big part of it yeah to me like as a power user or someone who had to explain a lot of these things even though i don't necessarily uh, know the algorithm behind them the important thing was that there was a reason so if if uh, this guy's qbr is terrible let's at least be able to say it's because well he was over seven on third downs and took you know, too many sacks or something. So as long as there's a reason just from a kind of a user and trying to understand it and apply it standpoint, like those, that's the main thing to me. Just if you can explain it rather than just say, oh, I don't know. As long as you can go through it, like Paul did about uh, why UConn linebacker Dylan Harris was so high in the PIR. You can talk through it and explain it. Like that's half of it to me. There's just got to be a reason. It's got to make some kind of sense. Absolutely. You're talking about months of my life there, Paul. We should have a whole podcast <laughs> on all the QBRs I had to explain during our first year. <laughs> yeah, it's like a 30 for 30 for QBR, right? Exactly. Yeah, that'd be a good one. All right. And on that note, we'll wrap up the 14th episode of Expected Value. My thanks again to ESPN's Paul Sabin for joining us on the show. We'll have more football talk next week as we continue this month of football building up to the Super Bowl. As always, please continue to subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get podcasts. Share it on social media. Tell your friends. We always appreciate anyone spreading the word about the show. Please follow us on Twitter at True Media Sports and hit us up if you have any questions or comments about the podcast or otherwise. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. 